A few weeks ago, we started a new series uh, where we've been talking about a new start and kind of looking through what uh, the last year has looked like and then talking through uh, what our hopes and our dreams and kind of what we think over uh, for the next year. And we really talked about uh, over the past two weeks, we've talked about how uh, it's healthy to be able to look back to 2011 and say, this is what 2011 was like. And, and it really gives us perspective to be able to say this is what 2012 uh, could be like. And so the first week we talked about how uh, really 2012 gives us this opportunity for a new start for uh, faith and, and new risks and new adventures. And then we talked about last week all the new things that uh, Mosaic is doing and that we are inviting you to be a part of. And today, we want to begin to talk about what it would look like uh, if we got a new start on life. But before we do that, let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for how much you love us, that you desire to move in our lives in ways that we've yet experienced. God, I thank you that uh, every time that we open up uh, your scripture, that we're changed by it. And I pray that today that you would open up our hearts and our minds to the things that you desire to do in us, that we would begin to understand uh, how you desire to create in us new things, good things. In Jesus' name, amen. Come closer. Come into this. Come closer. What beautiful battlefields you are. You are quite the beauty. If no one has ever told you that before, know that right now, you are quite the beauty. There is joy in how your mouth dances with your teeth. Your smile is simply a sign of how sacred your life actually is, so step into it. Come closer. Know that whatever God prays to, He asked of it to make something of worth. He woke from His dreams, scraped soil from the spaces, stuck somewhere inside Himself. He made you. He made you when He was happy. You make the world happy. Come into this. Come closer. Know that something softer than us but just as holy planted pieces of himself into our feet that we might one day dance our way back. Know that you are almost home. Come just a little bit closer. There are birds beating their wings beneath your breastplates. Gentle sparrows that ache to sing. Come aching hearts. Come soldiers of joy. Dormant of truth. Know that my heart was too big for my body, so I let it go. In most days, this world has thinned me to the point where I'm just another cloud, forgetting another flock of swans. But believe me when I tell you that my soul has managed to squeeze itself into such narrow spaces Place your hand beneath your head when you sleep tonight, and perhaps you will find it there. Making beauty as we sleep, as we dream, as we turn over. When we turn over in the ground, may the ghosts that we have asked answers of do that turning. Kneading us into crumbs of light and into this thing, love thing called life. Come into it. Come, you wooden museums, gentle tigers, little giants. I see teacups upside down, glowing across your grins. Your hearts are like my hands. Some days all they do is tremble. I am like you. I'm like you. I too at times am filled with so much fear. But like a hallway must find the strength to walk through it. Walk through this with me. Through this church of blood, bone and muscle that is our lives. 
There is a doorknob glowing like chance before you. Grab it, turn and pull, swing. Step through, back straight, chin up, eyes open, hearts loud. Walk through this with me. Walk through this with me. What beautiful battlefields you are. He planted pieces of himself in us, in our feet, that one day we may dance our way back to him. Paul writes a scripture in 2 Corinthians 5.17, and it says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. There's this one verse that Paul writes that contains weight and history and story. But in order to understand this, rather than simply defining terms, we actually have to go back to the very beginning, back to Genesis. Uh, if you remember the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 1, uh, if you have a Bible or you have you version, you can follow along. Uh, if we remember, if we stop and go back to what Paul wrote, and he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We have to stop and begin to define terms. And so we go back all the way to the very beginning of everything. The beginning of all things. And it starts like this. First, this. God created the heavens and the earth. All you see and all you don't see. Moses, the author of Genesis, talks about creation in this way. That God is the creator of all things. All that we see and all that we don't see. It goes on, according to Genesis chapter 1, to walk through the six days of creation. And it describes it uh, this way. God speaks on day one, and light is created. It goes on to say, and then there was day, and there was night, the first day. God speaks, water and sky is created, day two. God speaks, earth and seas are created, day three. God speaks, Plants are created. Day four. God speaks. The sun, the moon, and the stars are created. Day five. God speaks. Animals are created. And God creates man. Day six. Following the story into chapter uh, Genesis chapter two, we discover on day seven what happens is God rests. And Genesis chapter one ends with this phrase. And it was very good. It was good and very good. Six days of creation. One day of rest. A day set apart from all the other days. Regardless of how you view the creation story, whether you're the type of person who looks at the creation story and can say, this is a literal six days. Six days, everything happened. Or whether you're the type of person who looks at this kind of story and says, uh, it's pretty childish poem. You know, like a childish story to explain childish things. Or whether you look at this poem and you say, it's one of the most masterfully written poems ever to existed. Regardless of how you view this story, one thing comes through. God has always been in the business of creating good things and very good things. And that's important to establish at the beginning of what we believe about God and what we believe about faith. Because oftentimes our view of God is this. God is a punishing God who does very bad things. 
But the beginning of our faith story in scripture is this. God is a God who creates good things, very good things. That's where the story starts. The story of God starts with God creating good things and very good things. God is a God who creates good things. If we fast forward about several thousand years, we're introduced to this character named John. John was one of Jesus' disciples, and and many people consider John probably Jesus' best earthly friend. He spent more time with Jesus than any other other disciple. Uh, John's story is interesting because when we are introduced to the Gospel of John, the first uh, story that we have of, of Jesus, the book of John was written when John was in jail. At the end of his life, it's the last book he ever wrote. And it's this story of Jesus and who Jesus is. And we have to always remember the context. Paul's in, or John's in prison. He's been put in prison because he constantly, again and again, keeps referring to Jesus as his emperor, as his Lord. And so uh, the early Christians, contrary to popular belief in American history, the early Christians weren't put in jail because of their moral purity or because uh, they kept saying that Jesus would save people from their sins. They kept being put in prison because they kept saying there was another king. Again and again they kept saying, there's this other king, and he's alive, and his name's Jesus, and he's bigger than Rome. He's bigger than the kingdom that's present. So John's in prison, and he writes this story, this narrative of who Jesus is. And when he starts to write this story, John does something that none of the other gospel writers do. All the other gospels begin with Jesus' genealogy. They all start with something like, and Jesus was born this way, and they tell the story of, of his genealogy and, and the birth of Jesus. John, rather than going there, or rather than assuming we know all of this, starts somewhere completely different. If you go to the first chapter of John, the very first words are, and in the beginning. And in the beginning. John immediately throws it back to Genesis. He connects who Jesus is and the things that Jesus came to do to the beginning of everything. He starts his gospel story of who Jesus is by saying the world began like this. And every Jewish person who read the story knew where John was going. He starts with the beginning of all things. John then begins to do something kind of interesting, something kind of different. He starts to record miracles and signs that are happening. He starts to talk about how Jesus is, is somehow different than every person who's ever come along before. And John does it kind of in an interesting way. Uh, if you start in John chapter 2, he starts to say, and this was a sign. It's that phrase. And, and then Jesus performed this sign. And John 2 is the very first sign that's recorded. It's, it's when Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. And it's the first glimpse that, that John really gives us of saying, there's something different about who this Jesus is. Then, in John 4, we get a second sign. John records it this way. This was his second sign. And it's of this official son who Jesus heals. And, and, and we're given this picture that first there's this water that's turned into wine, and that was the first sign. The second sign is that there's this official son who, who needs healing. Then, in John 5, John stops counting. He no longer says, this was sign number 3, uh, but he does say, and this was a sign. And in John 5, he records a sign of how at the pool, Jesus 
heals someone. So first there's water into wine, sign one. And then there's the official son who's healed, sign two. And then there's this person who's healed at the pool, sign three. As John stops recording, he now just starts, they start flowing. And, and the next sign is of Jesus breaking bread and feeding thousands, sign four. And then in the same chapter in John 6, we get this picture of Jesus walking on water. And John says, and this was a sign. And then we hear a story of Jesus healing a blind man. And John records, and this was a sign in John 9. And then we hear the story of a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus, who is one of Jesus' friends, uh, gets raised from the dead. And John records it, and this was a sign. And if you're keeping track, that's seven. Seven signs. But then... John goes quiet. No more signs. In fact, from John 11 till John 20, we're introduced to the narrative of Jesus' death and resurrection. No more signs happen. No more miracles happen. But there's been seven signs. So then we're introduced to Jesus' resurrection story. And Jesus' resurrection story, if you remember, uh, we're introduced to Jesus' death first. And he's crucified on a cross, a gruesome death. And some friends who are hidden disciples of Jesus take his body and hide it in a rich man's grave. And then, on Sunday, three days after his death and his crucifixion, we're given this picture of Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 20. John starts recording signs all of a sudden again. John picks up with the sign of Jesus' resurrection. He, he actually says, and this was a sign of who Jesus was. Now, we have to stop and say, okay, what's, what's the point of all of this? John, who's a very good Jewish man, who grew up in Jewish tradition, knows something about numbers. Now, remember, there's seven signs. There's seven days in a week. And so, if we're to stop for a moment, what we're introduced to is something that John does again and again throughout the book of John. He always connects what Jesus is doing and who Jesus is and Jesus' death and resurrection all the way back to Genesis. And there's a reason for it. Because when Jesus is on the scene, John all of a sudden starts to notice something. What happened at the beginning of time is now all of a sudden present in Jesus' time. What happened where Jesus uh, starts to perform miracles and starts to heal people. I mean, look at the, the start of the story. It starts with turning water into wine. Seven signs later, we're raising people from the dead. So Jesus is doing something new, and there's been seven signs. And then John does something interesting. He says, but wait, there's an eighth sign. Now, most of us can count there's seven days in a week. So John's doing something. He's, he's hinting at something. There's this eighth sign. He's saying there's something new starting in Jesus that's never been done before. In Jesus, who, who he's connecting with the beginning of all things, is all of a sudden saying, there's something new happening. Stop what you're doing. And in fact, he kind of gives us hints throughout the, the John chapter 20. If you, if you read John chapter 20, he says that Jesus looks like a gardener. Right? Like Jesus looks like a gardener. And gardens are connected to something that happened at the beginning of, of all things. So John does something where he begins to say, there's this Jesus who does something that's never been done before, and it's connected to the beginning of everything that's ever happened. 
that in Jesus' death and resurrection, and especially what happens in this eighth sign, when Jesus rises from the dead, it's connected to the beginning of everything, and it changes everything. So we're introduced to the story, which brings us back to what we started with at the beginning of this morning. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Whoever is a believer in Christ, whoever is in Christ, is a new creation. The old way of living has disappeared. A new way of living has come into existence. Paul has spent the last chapter, if you get a chance, go back and read what happens in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. He spent an entire two chapters explaining, this is what happened when Jesus died on the cross, and this is what happened in the resurrection. And what he says is, everything is different. Nothing can stay the same. And so when he reaches 2 Corinthians 5.17, he's saying, nothing can ever be the same again. Because Jesus' death and resurrection has happened, everything is different. He summarizes years of theology, years of history and story for everything that's ever happened and says, when you look at Jesus, when you look at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, nothing in our world or in our lives can ever be the same again because he's doing something completely different. In fact, he says, there's something new. The old way of doing things has disappeared and the new has come. The new has come. Paul's basically saying this, that in the midst of this old world where the old way of life still exists, where it still happens, a new way of living has burst forth in the midst of it. In the midst of where everything in life looks the same, life now offers us something different. This idea of new creation offers us and begins to invite us to live differently in the midst of a world that still looks the same. New creation offers us that Jesus' story, Jesus' death and resurrection offers us a but. It offers us this word. It offers us in the midst of an old world that doesn't change, where things are always the same, there's a new way possible. A different way of living is possible. A new world is upon us. It's this invitation for us to begin to embrace the life God offers us and to Embrace life at its very best. Which, of course, brings us to the end of all things. Paul and John and Jesus and the gospel writers understood that all of these things are connected. The beginning of all things. Jesus' death and resurrection and the end of all things seem to hold this idea of new creation and life and hope. John and Paul both have this unique understanding of who Jesus is and his role and the scope of who he is and what he's done in our world. And so at the end of all things in the book of Revelation, which can be a scary thing to read sometimes because you're like, I don't understand what this is saying. Towards the end of the book, we're introduced to this idea of new creation again. And this is John writing from prison in John 21, 1 through 5. And he says this, Then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne has said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. John connects the beginning of all things to this resurrection of Jesus. But then he connects the resurrection of who Jesus is, the creating of all new things, to the end of all things. It's as if Jesus and John have this secret. It's like they understand something that's happening in the midst of this very old world. John connects the beginning and the end of everything together. He connects creation to eternity. And here's the point maybe of all this. Maybe the point of of this grand narrative that John tells and that Paul gets in on is maybe the point is that what we learn through the creation story, what we learn through the resurrection story, what we learn through the end of all things is that God has always been in the business of creating new, very good things. That God's always been in this business of taking what's broken, what's nothing, what's what seems out of place and creating something brand new in the midst of it. God's always been in the business of creating good things and very good things. Jesus' resurrection moved this just from theory, that God is a God who does good things. Jesus' resurrection all of a sudden takes it from idea and, and just thought and theology to something that's reality. Because what John and Paul and Jesus keep insisting on is that there's not just this idea that creation one day will be made new and everything will happen again. But what they keep insisting on is that it's now. That right now, there's new creation available. That right now, that you can be become a new creation. What Paul and what John keep insisting on is that your life doesn't have to stay the same. They insist that you get a new start, that tomorrow can be different. And what John keeps insisting on is that resurrection has actually happened. See, John's proof for resurrection isn't, here's all these people who have seen Jesus raised from the dead. Here's all these people that you can hear their story. His insistence that Jesus actually raised from the dead is new creation. His insistence is that everything has changed. There's now a possibility that life can start new. What John says, and and what the entire New Testament seeks to help us understand, is that because it's no longer theory, and because it's not just empty theology, but it's actually really happening in our world, what they all keep seeking to tell us is, look, it's actually happening, and here's how you can get on it. Here's how you can get in on this thing that Jesus is doing, this brand new thing that's happening in our world. He keeps insisting. They keep insisting the prophets started it. In fact, the prophets were the first ones who said, God's going to live among you. And now John brings it up and says, it's actually going to happen. John says that this new creation world looks different. He says it this way, that in a world of death, we're invited to live our lives grounded in hope. What new creation offers us is hope for tomorrow. New creation offers us hope for now. In a world of tears, 
he says that Jesus will wipe away their tears. He says that instead of tears, there'll be joy. Instead of mourning, there'll be new mornings tomorrow. In a world of hate, instead of hate, he says, life will be built on love and be built up by love. In a world of pain, we're invited to believe that healing actually happens. In a world of abuse and exploitation and broken things, we're invited to seek justice. And in a a world where evil actually exists, we're invited to believe that God actually leaves heaven and lives among us, broken, sinful people. And I think where we arrive, where this story leads us, this idea that I can become a new creation if my life is in Christ, where we're led to is that if it's actually possible that all the old things that used to define my life and I used to identify, if all those things can pass away, then there's this new opportunity for my life. Then what would it look like? What would my life start to be shaped by? Who would, what would begin to define who I am and where would I find my identity? And this new creation, this whole creation and resurrection thing, what it connects us to is this deep human need that all of us have. All of humanity longs for new starts and, and, and for tomorrow to actually come because all of us know that in today and yesterday, I, I've screwed up and I failed. So what John and Paul and Jesus keep insisting, what they keep inviting us to actually believe and start to live is that Jesus offers newness. Jesus offers a new tomorrow and a new start and a new life. And so the possibility of newness really offers us, I think, two things today. Two things that I think we can kind of leave the, these, this grand narrative with is one, hope. The newness of this story, the opportunity for new creation in my life and in my world offers hope. Hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that another world, another way of living is actually possible. That in the end, the rich and the powerful and the greedy don't get the last word. New creation offers us this. That in the end, all the things that we can look at in our world and say, it's broken and it's not working, new creation says, there's another way of living possible. There's another world possible. Hope is what you get when you realize that a new start is possible, that tomorrow I can live differently. Hope is what you get when you realize that tomorrow will actually come, that, that there will be this opportunity for a new start. I, I, I think when I look at Christianity in America and I look at uh, kind of like our generation, I think one of the phrases that should describe Christianity in general is that we should be the most hopeful people in the world. Christians tend to get known for all the things that we're against and all the things that we say you shouldn't do or, or, or the things that, that we don't like and so we're cynics and skeptics. But the story of new creation invites this. Hope. It invites to see the good in the midst of our world. It, it invites us to start to say, uh, I believe in healing. I believe in loving and serving and giving. I believe in the good things in my world. And so 
this is an invitation to say, the old way of living life used to be defined by, here's everything everyone else is doing wrong. But new creation invites this. I'm going to start to see the good in others. I'm going to start to see the good in my world. I'm going to start to see the good that's bursting forth in the midst of the world that I live in. So we're invited to no longer be skeptics and cynics. Because believing the best, striving for the best, and seeing the best should define what hope looks like in our life. That we choose to believe for bigger and greater things. Because a new way is burst forth in the midst of our lives. But we're not just invited to have this hope. Uh, We're actually invited to do something with this. And it's what the entire New Testament tries to get us in on. It tries to remind us again and again that it's not just something that we wait until the end of all things, until the world stops spinning and, and we're brought up to heaven or something, but it's something that's happening now. It's something that we're invited to do right now in our families and in our homes and in our city. And so what, what they say is you actually have a job to do. There's work to be done. New creation invites us to be a part of bringing this new creation into our world. In fact, it's why Jesus, when he teaches the disciples to pray, he doesn't say, and pray that you can go to the kingdom one day in heaven and everything will be okay. He says, pray like this, your kingdom come. Come means it's coming here. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. The entire scope of Jesus' ministry wasn't interested in helping you escape our world, but it was interested in helping you bring heaven to earth. Is inviting you and me to help begin to usher in what this new creation looks like. To help you and me be hope to the hopeless. And so what this story, what this grand narrative is inviting us to, to be a new creation, it's inviting us to begin to actually start to heal hurts. It's inviting us to start to wipe away tears. It's inviting us to start to believe that God actually does live among us. Revelation insists, Jesus insists, that we are the bringers of hope to the world. That you and I have been challenged and charged to bring hope to our world. And so the hope that we experience when we experience who Jesus is and the salvation that he offers and the life that he offers in, the, in our present circumstances. We're invited now to move beyond theory and say, if I have hope, my job My life should be about bringing hope to others. My world should revolve around bringing hope to others. Scripture constantly insists that the good news is not just something we tell people, but we're invited to actually be the good news to people. In fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament was never connected to words that someone said, but it was always connected to people freeing prisoners. You can look in Isaiah and read the story of Isaiah where he again and again insists that what Jesus came to do wasn't just to offer us a way to heaven, but to set prisoners free, to set the captives free, to release prisoners. These are messages of hope that in the midst of a world that doesn't change, in the midst of a world that's filled with broken things, that we are invited to to be bringers of hope. That's a hard phrase to say. We're invited to be these kinds of people who believe not only the best for our tomorrow, but we're invited to be the people who believe the best for your tomorrow. And so what we're left with is this hope 
This hope that we can hold on to, that Jesus is death and resurrection, actually means something. That they're not just theological facts and history that happened at one point, but they're things that happen presently in our lives. That when we choose to invite Jesus' new creation that he can do in our lives, it presently happens in our lives. That we're raised from the dead. That we experience new life and the new things that Jesus is doing. So, the truth is, 2012 is happening whether you like it or not. You, you can't stop it. Time, it's happening. So what we're left with is this. We're left with this opportunity for a new tomorrow. For, to actually believe that in the midst of a world that doesn't seem to change, because you can look through history and find that emperors and empires and the ways of doing life may seem to fluctuate in how culture works, but our world, it's not changing. And so, in the story of Jesus, we're invited to, to actually believe that in the midst of this very room, in the midst of this very world, in the midst of your very life, we're invited to actually believe that Jesus' death and resurrection can change everything forever. So, I guess the question is, for us, is, do you believe? Because what it says is, uh, Paul invites it this way, anyone who is in Christ. Anyone who has placed their hope and their life in Christ is a new creation. And I'm not talking about, have you said a prayer? Or have you asked Jesus to live in your heart? What I'm asking is, is your life, all that you are, how you spend your energy and your time and your efforts and your talents, is your the essence of who you are, your identity, what makes you you, is you, is who you are in Christ. Because that's when Paul says, the old things, the old things that used to define my life are gone. But new, the new has come. And so, this year, will you choose to embrace the joy and the hope and the life that Jesus offers in his resurrection? Because this year will be filled with lots of, of old, hurtful things. Ways that the world has always existed. It'll be filled with tears. It'll be filled with broken promises and pain and death. But the story of Jesus offers a world filled with life, hope, and joy. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for how, how you love us. That from the beginning of everything, from the beginning of time, that you've been weaving into our lives and into our world the need for newness and new starts. And throughout scripture and throughout history, you've been pointing us to the opportunity for new life and for hope and for joy. So God, on, on this day, in our present circumstances, in our present world, 
filled with doubts and fears and insecurities and issues and death and tears. You offer us new life. You offer us in your death on the cross and in your resurrection. You invite us. You invite us with our failings and our fears and our faults to embrace a new tomorrow. And so God, as we look at 2012, we invite you to begin to to retell our stories. To remind us that in this grand story of who you are and what you can do, that no matter what our past has looked like or what today has become, that you invite us. You invite us to be made new. To be filled with hope. with a hope that moves us to be bringers of hope to our world.